Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 39 of the Kennedy Mile Report. Brought to you by our great sponsor, Clio, and its suite of online law practice management tools. I'm Dennis Kennedy in St. Louis. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we talked about a recent survey showing the dissatisfaction of big firm associates with big firm technology. In this episode, we'll discuss a growing practice by technology vendors and web services that is starting to really annoy us, or at least it really annoys me. Tom, do you want to tell our listeners what we'll cover in this episode? Absolutely, Dennis. In this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, we're going to talk about the idea of presumptuous computing and how it affects lawyers and technology. In our second segment, we'll answer some audience questions about legal technology, specifically collaboration tools in big law firms. And as usual, we'll end with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation you can begin to use as soon as this podcast is over. But on to our main topic, which is presumptuous computing. Uh, it seems that more and more technology vendors or web services uh, are making assumptions about how they want us to use their technology. And a lot of the time, they're getting, I think, anyway, those assumptions wrong. And I think by what you said, you you agree with that. Dennis, you've been actually talking about and blogging about the idea of presumptuous computing for a couple of years now. Do you want to give us your definition of this phenomenon? Yeah, Tom, I went back and I looked at my original blog post, which was from 2007, and which my friend uh, Jack Vinson, who writes a great blog, described as a discussion slash rant, uh, (laughs) which is probably a good way to describe what I was uh, talking about there. But the idea is that we have these computers and it seems like software companies with their programs, the web services that we go to, the web pages we go to on a regular basis like Facebook... Um, are like really impolite guests. And so it seems like they're on your computer. They do stuff. They, they leave wet towels laying around all over the place. You know, there's, and, and they don't really ask you, but there's a sort of sense that you get that people are installing software and doing things that, uh, they think they know better than you, you do what should go on on your computer. And, and what prompted my, uh, my original blog post, um, in addition to iTunes, which really was annoying me at the time, was that, that I would do the the Windows updates uh, would happen automatically, which I which is a great thing to do for security reasons. But I would sometimes, you know, at the end of the evening, leave open a number of programs, websites, that sort of things that I want to start working on the next morning, and then I would. S- go to start up my computer in the morning and I'd find that it rebooted and everything was gone because there was a, a, a security update that had happened overnight and it had uh, rebooted my computer. And so I, I thought of it in terms of like, well, that's really presumptuous of, of people uh, to to decide what they want to do with my computer. And and it is a phenomenon that seems to have grown a lot. And it's spread from just being on your computer um, to some of the web pages we go to. And, and as I said, Facebook uh, has been a great example over the last year. Tom, is is that your sense for what we're talking about? It is. But, you know, I would actually – I wouldn't compare – 
this presumptuous computing to the guest who leaves their towels all over the floor. I, I would liken it more to the uh, over-attentive hotel services that uh, come in and turn down your bed when you don't ask them to, leave lots of chocolate when you're on a diet, uh, bring lots of towels when you don't actually need them, and just keep on bothering you asking for more. Because I think that at heart, these services intend, or at least they have, good intentions. I think that they are uh, they, they mean to be good. And, and part of the part of the problem is is that these these programs have become so infinitely customizable. Uh, as as software improves, we can do so much more with it and and configure it in so many different ways that uh, they sometimes try to be more helpful than they should be and try to configure it uh, in ways that they think the average user is going to want to uh, to operate it or have it updated uh, or something like that. But uh, I think that they they get it wrong a lot and they they pay the price for it. I, I know that that one of the I'll just give a couple examples that really annoy the heck out of me. And one of them is a really new one. You know, Facebook has been uh, a, a big problem with uh, with its privacy issues and, and the fact that they have settings that come, you know, the minute you set up your account, the settings presume that you want to share uh, everything with the world and you are forced to go in and set, change those settings yourself. And they don't seem to get it because people complain about it every time the, this happens. And uh, every time they roll something new out, they show that they really haven't learned their lesson. And the latest example is something that just happened this past week where they've changed their privacy process for when someone wants to friend you. And typically, if, if someone wants to friend you in Facebook, it either says accept or ignore. And those are your two choices. If you ignore, then that that request goes away and you don't have to deal with it anymore. Now, instead of ignore, there's a button that says not now. And not now uh, basically requires you to go through several more screens to ignore them or to actually block them if they're stalking you or they make repeated requests. But just clicking the not now button doesn't it doesn't solve the problem because your wall posts, I believe, from what I've read, still remain visible to the average person um, while they uh, while they're under the not now status. So they don't even have to be your friend and they can still get access to some of the things that uh, that 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 you post on Facebook. What are some of I've got some more examples, but what are some of your biggest examples of annoying presumptive computing? Well, I, there's so many of them that they sort of fall into categories. And the ones that really irritate me are, uh, it's, it's sort of similar to your Facebook one, although I, I think it does fall into a different category. Uh, but uh, when you do an update and all of your default settings and personalizations go away. And so, um, and, and I'll come back and talk about this because I think there is a big difference between an update and when you go to a completely new version. And I'm, all, I'm way more tolerant when I go to a new version about I agree. even, Me too. even big, big changes. So I do an update, which I think is a security update. And I go to say, save, save my work in something and I look for it and it's not in the folder that I, that it's supposed to be in. And I realized that my default settings have been changed and it's going to a different folder. And I had no idea. I, there was nothing that, that led me to expect that was, that was going to happen. So that's a big one for me because if you do any personalization at all, you're just used to things and it, it gets in your way when that change happens. And you don't, although you understand somebody must have decided there was a usability or other reason for making that change, um, it just doesn't, 
it it doesn't make a lot of sense. The other one I really don't like, and this has been going on since the beginning of computing, is that sort of combination of installing a new program without you realizing it uh, because it'll be to your benefit, and then putting the program into your start. Uh, you know, your startup routine. So all of a sudden you have a new program installing itself and opening itself as you log onto your computer. That one I find really annoying because some of those are, are difficult to, to uninstall and, and get them turned off. So those to me are, are two big categories. I got a couple of other categories, Tom, but um, I know you said you had some more too. Well, I think one of my biggest annoyances, although it is a necessary annoyance, is Windows Update, which will, um, on my computer anyway, will just begin updating and begin downloading and basically bring my entire computer to a complete halt uh, while it's doing it. I can't get anything done, and I think that's probably more a function of my computer, but I, I wish I knew that it was happening, but there's nothing, there's no processes, there's nothing that seems to be running that tells me that I'm downloading an update, and it'll It'll only be about maybe 30 minutes later as it goes through this arduous process that it lets me know, oh, by the way, Windows is ready to install some new updates. And and that's what we've been doing this whole time and why your computer slowed down. And just the fact that I don't know about it really is is a, is a pain, although now I guess I've learned enough to know about it. Um, I think that also you, you, you talk about programs that get installed with other programs. One of the ones that I think is sort of the, the dirtiest trickster is the software that you buy and they have had some partnership deal with Google Desktop or with Yahoo Search Toolbar, and that as you're going through the the, uh, uh, the, the, the dialog boxes to install it, there'll be a very small checkbox that says, uncheck this box if you do not want to install it. And most people miss it. Most people are just clicking next, next, next. I just want to install the program, and they miss that. And it's something that I've learned, lesson from the hard way, mostly because having to go and fix on my father's computer because he's routinely getting new toolbars in his browser that he cannot for the life of him figure out how they got there. And, and I guarantee that's how it happened. Now, to, to address your problem, Dennis, I, I think you're right. I get a lot of programs that are within, uh, within the uh, uh, startup, my startup programs once they are installed. But I will tell you, I think I mentioned it on this podcast a couple of episodes ago. I've been using a program called Saluto, S-O-L-U-T-O. I'll include it in the show notes. It is, in my opinion, one of the best new tools for managing the programs that start up with your computer. And if something happens to be in the startup, it's easy to move that off so that you can either pause it uh, or or pause it so it comes on whenever you want it to come to start or delay it so that it actually doesn't start up until after your program, your computer has booted up fully. It's a it's a great uh, it's it's a it's a great time saving tool. Um, Dennis, what do you think? I, I I don't want this podcast to be about us whining about uh, uh, about the problems that we have with it. So clearly, we, we must have something for our listeners. What what do you think we ought to do, or what do you think our listeners should do um, about issues like this? Well, I th- I think we need to think reasonably about it and sort of react reasonably to these things. Um, 
And and a lot of times you have the ability to turn things on and, and turn things off. And so in the last podcast, you were talking about how much you liked about Google Instant Search. And and it just totally freaked me out when I went to use it for the first time and I was able to turn it off. And so a lot of times you're just going to be able to turn those things off. And I, But I also think we have to be aware that this is one of the trade-offs we're now making in, in computing. And it's especially in the world of cloud computing. Computing, web 2.0, the sort of web services world. So there's a trade-off there that I'm generally willing to make, which is that um, if I go to some hosted service or site that I use all the time, um, I, I'm getting new features, I'm getting improvements all the time, and I'm willing to, to make that trade-off because I get the extra features and such um, with the understanding that from time to time, they may change the user interface. And probably that they're making that change on the basis of a lot of research, and they're making the change because it makes sense for a lot of people. Um, so you, you do want to be reasonable about it. But I, I think that, uh, you know, the, the thing that you point to, that sort of tricky thing of pre-checking a box to install a program, I mean, if the program is so great, then why do you have to trick me into using it. it all, you know, I'm, I never try those things where it's pre-checked because I feel that there must be something wrong with it because you, you don't have enough confidence in it that, that, that you can't do it without trying to trick me. So I think you need to kind of put yourself in the mindset of the vendors a little bit and try to figure out what it is that they're doing and then try to recognize some areas where these things will happen happen and there's some there's some uh, you know common steps you can you can take and I know Tom last night when we were uh, skyping about this you you uh, you made about three or four points that I, I thought were really good so why don't you make those points? Well, I think that the, the, the best way to handle presumptuous computing is just to be smart. And, and, and we talk all the time about ways that technology users need to be careful in using the technology that they have. And this really is no exception. So if you're, if you're following the advice that we've given in other podcasts, then you're probably already in a position to deal with this. And, and this podcast <laughs> may not be of as much use to you. But really, pay attention to the dialog boxes as you're installing programs. That's a simple and that's a no-brainer. Just read what you're seeing. Just pay attention to what you're installing so that you know exactly what's happening to your computer. Make sure you read the settings for all the services that you use, whether they're online, whether they're whether it's software that you've downloaded. Like I said, Facebook has created a privacy settings that are just mammoth in, in, in their scale, and they change frequently. So make it a point. If you use that service, any service that you use on a regular basis, make it a point to routinely go in and make sure that those services haven't changed and that the settings are exactly the way that you want them to be. Um, if you're having a problem with a particular setting, if something happens, you get something installed that you didn't expect to have installed or or suddenly the setting comes up that uh, you didn't expect to have been set that way and you don't know how to deal with it, I, I would it would be safe to, to assume that other people have had that same problem. You're probably not the first person to have it. And my usual course of action is to go to Google and to type in the problem I'm having. I would talk about a particular setting, a particular language that I see in the software or the service that I'm using. And I can usually get to some sort of help forum where people have asked that exact same question in the past. You know, whatever you do, don't 
assume that the vendor or the web service has your interest at heart. That's the, I think the main thing. Don't, don't assume that in many cases they might, but, but don't. And to do that, I think keeping up to date, listening to this podcast, reading tech news or tech blogs, because if problems happen with particular types of software, they're going to report on it. People are going to talk about it and, uh, and, and report on the news, especially if it's big and it's affecting a lot of people. And so you can keep up to date with that. You know, I think that one of the things Dennis had talked about was, was maybe waiting a little bit before you decide to install something. And that may be a good idea so that you have some time to see what, uh, what the web says about that that type of uh, issue. Dennis, what are any last, last or best tips for dealing with presumptuous computing? Yeah, I, there's a couple of things. And so the first was, I, I think you need to watch out for the repeat offenders. So for me, I only half jokingly say I have an iTunes prayer that I say every time before I, in, I update <laughs> iTunes, because iTunes really seems to make a lot of, of changes on a regular basis. I also know that if I hear about changes in Facebook, I immediately go to Facebook and, and look at the privacy settings. So you can identify uh, some of those areas that you really have to pay attention to. I think the big thing, though, is that it is not a solution to say, I'm never going to install updates because then, then my environment will stay the same. I think in today's security world, that's just crazy. So totally agree. I, I, do, I do think you have to come up with, with, uh, with some kind of, of, of strategy. And I, I like the idea of, you know, potentially, uh, I mean, it's tricky because there are zero day uh, security issues. So you need to, to have some concern about it. But sometimes you can wait a day or two do the Google search, ask some people, see what people might be saying on Twitter and, and get an idea of, of what's what's com coming on out there uh, in, in terms of what to expect in these updates. I do that all the time with iTunes. I like to see uh, if if there are problems that, are, that people are having. So those would be uh, the thoughts I have. And, and it's just, I, I think you just need to be a little bit more, take a little bit more control over what's happening on your, your desktop and on the websites you go to and, and not be uh, quite as passive as I think we've been used to over the, the last few years. Tom? And on that, we are agreed. Before we move on to our next segment, though, let's take a quick break with a few words from the Legal Talk Network and our sponsor, Clio, with its great suite of online practice management tools. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for our free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code KMR for a 25% discount. Interested in having a show on Legal Talk Network? We'd like to talk to you about building your firm's marketing strategy with legal podcasts. Give us a call at 781-551-9960. That's LegalTalkNetwork.com. And welcome back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. Tom, we've had a question this week in our, for our question and answer slot uh, uh, from our good friend Joanna Forche. And she, uh, she and uh, Yopes to Inside Legal have done the 2010 Inside Legal ILTA 
uh, technology purchasing survey, which has a lot of great information about what's going on in, in the law firm world when it comes to technology. And they added a, a couple of questions to the survey, which I understand you might have even helped them with on uh, collaboration tools. And so they were curious about what we thought about the the results that the the survey shows on what collaboration tools law firms are using and in in their firms uh, both internally and externally. Tom, you want to take a stab at that? Sure. I want, let me give the uh, for those who who haven't seen the report. Let me give quickly the questions and and the reasons. And yep, I I talked with Joanna last year as they were fleshing out the survey for this year and and suggested that there be these questions on collaboration tools because you know you and I both agree that this is a a a, a major new technology trend. And so the two questions were. One, what collaboration tools do you use internally? And two, what collaboration tools do you use to communicate externally? And they had the same answers, but they had very different results depending on the tool. So for internal use, the, uh, the, the, the one that was used the most was SharePoint with 51%, document collaboration tools at 48%, online meetings at 46%, instant messaging at 26%, no tools, so the firm was using no collaboration tools. 19% of those who were responding used that, and 18% are using wikis. For external collaboration, a um, little bit different. Online meetings on top at 46%. Document collaboration still close second with 40, uh, actually a tie with 46%. No was the was the next one at twenty five percent. So so twenty five percent are using no collaboration tools to work outside with uh, with clients and and other colleagues. SharePoint external usage is only twenty four percent, half of what is being done internally. Wikis eight percent and instant messaging seven percent. Those last two really aren't surprising to me because I don't think that many lawyers are comfortable using those outside of the firm. I guess what surprises me the most is the fact that only fifty one percent of of law firms are using SharePoint internally for their collaboration because I'm seeing in the corporate world, nearly every company that I talk to has deployed SharePoint in some format as a collaboration tool. And I'm, I, I don't know if it's the fact that law firms tend to be a little bit more insular, that they don't embrace technology as fast as, as corporations do. But that number, Dennis, surprised me a lot. What uh, Did that surprise you or did anything else about these results surprise you? You know, the SharePoint thing didn't surprise me because I think what's really happening in SharePoint takes Office 2007 and up. And so you have a lot of law firms still in an older Microsoft Office world. So um, that doesn't well, I'll, totally I'll only surprise say, me. I'll only say, Dennis, that the, that that SharePoint comes free. I mean, if you've got a Microsoft server, you have SharePoint. So every firm that's responding probably has SharePoint available and they're not using it. And I guess that's where my surprise comes from. Yeah, well, and that's, a, I think, a topic we've hit on before. And we might talk about another day about how people don't use, especially free tools that they already have. Yep. I mean, I, I sort of the 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 invisible presence in those results is is that email, of course, is used for collaboration. I think you see that I, the wiki number totally surprises me. Eighteen percent. I just can't even believe that. Um, but you know, uh, it is what it is. Uh, the where people f think they have none. I mean, you're talking about anywhere from twenty 
percent to 25 percent say they use nothing. I, I sort of think that's an education problem, um, you know, in firms. But that's kind of a sad state of affairs because I think that, uh, you know, admittedly, Tom, when we wrote the book, I, you know, it, it sort of forces us to look at the world as like, hey, everything is a collaboration tool. And that's the, you know, that is the big trend that's, that's out there. But to think that you have no collaboration at, uh, tools at all just seems like a really sad state of affairs. And, and maybe it's just a, a, a matter of definition and, and categorization. But um, I, in general, I just I found all of the numbers to be um, fairly low for 2010. I mean, I guess I, that would be my main reaction. Yep, I, I agree with that, and and I think that that the that the comp- the law firms that said none may not have understood what a collaboration tool is. They may not have understood, you know, email obviously wasn't listed as a, as a tool, but I would imagine that they're using more tools than they, than they know they are. Uh, they, they just didn't realize it from looking at this list. The one, the one uh, item on here that I would question because it's not, really defined. And I'm not sure whether in the survey, it was defined beyond the term document collaboration tools uh, is whether or not because it, it was fairly high. I, I mean, 46%, 48% internally, 46% externally. And I guess I mean, 48 is is relative compared to uh, the, the other the other uh, uh, tools that were listed in the survey. But I wonder whether or not for the firms that are answering that document collaboration tools simply means using track changes and not using actual tools that allow people to work on documents at the same time in a, in a shared area. And, and I'd be interested to know how that breaks down and, and whether or not people are just using the red line feature in, and in word or are using a professional redlining tool to do that. But I agree. I'm, I, I'm not overall surprised at these results. I think it is low. I think it's disappointing considering that it's 2010 that that uh, we've been talking about collaboration now for well over three years and an adoption is only this uh, this far along. But I, again, with law firms, I'm just not surprised about it. Any last comments uh, on yeah. Joanna's question? Yeah, I mean, two questions. One, I, I think it is true, and then the results show this, that online meetings are really going to drive external collaboration. They're going to be the, the main tool and the main vehicle that lawyers ride uh, for collaboration. And so that's where I would put attention. And there's a lot of things you can do in those online conferencing tools that that relate to document collaboration and the other things. I would also go out on a limb and make a prediction that over the next year or two, that percentage of use of instant messaging is going to go way up. I, I, I'm not sure I agree with from the external uh, external communications. I think internally, uh, you may see instant messaging go up, but I think that law firms as a whole are still very wary about uh, client communications in, in, in instant message format. And I think that there will be less of a, uh, a willingness to move over to that area um, in, the, in the coming years. I will say, though, that uh, I read an article this past week that there are now four services, and I have three of them right now on my iPad. I can attend a meeting on my iPad using GoToMeeting, WebEx, or a new service called Fuse and attend a meeting anywhere I want to with the iPad. It's really it's really awesome. So I agree that, that uh, these uh, online meeting tools are really going to drive collaboration in the coming years. 
Well, let's do our uh, parting shots. That one tip, website, or observation you can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. Well, I'm going to actually use uh, and, and talk about an app, of one for the iPhone and one for the iPad, that I've been sort of playing around with and trying, and I really like them. Uh, the one for the iPhone is called Signit. And uh, Signit is a tool that will take PDF files that you receive by email or that you uh, have in, a, in an online stored area, and it allows you to do a couple of things with them. You can type text onto the PDF. You can actually sign it. It'll, it'll allow you to sign on the touch screen. And so if there's a signature line, you can put your signature in. You can put a stamp for confidential or other types of, there's a, a number of pre-made stamps that are there. And it's a great way if you've got to deal with PDF documents while you're on the go, uh, it allows you to uh, to deal with those very easily and, uh, and, and without a lot of hassle. It's probably one of the better PDF annotation signing tools that I found for the iPhone. I think it was either $299 or $399. It's not very expensive, and it's considering what you're getting for it, it's definitely worth the cost. The other one is a, is iAnnotate, and I'm just getting starting to use it. It's for the iPad, and it actually allows you to mark up PDF files too, probably in a more um, in a broader way than on an iPhone because you've got more more real estate to do it. And I'm just learning how to use that. It's a bit more expensive. I think that's $999. But definitely two tools worth uh, looking into if you are receiving emails, uh, PDFs in your emails that you need to deal with while you happen to be on the road or away from your computer. Dennis? Yeah, I think it's now that you mentioned two apps, I think it's also worth saying to to the listeners that I, there's definitely going to be a, an episode on apps coming in probably the not too distant future. It's just a, a huge area, um, obviously, that's that's happening right now. Um, for, for my parting shot, I'm a big fan of, of presentation blogs. So blogs by people who are experts on doing presentations. I think one of the most important uses of technology to communicate and to improve presentations in particular. So one of my favorite blogs is called Speaking About Presenting. Uh, it's by Olivia Mitchell, who does great posts and articles all the time. Uh, most recent of which that I really liked is called The Seven Types of Presentations to Avoid. It has a great list. You'll recognize most of them if you've had to sit through bad uh, presentations before, like the, the race against the clock presentation, the I want to tell you everything presentation, the grab bag presentation. One of my favorites, the perpetually taxiing presentation where somebody <laughs> keeps giving you background and information about themselves and you're, you know, most of the way through the time before they even start into the presentation. So uh, some great. Great commentary there and some, some things that you can avoid in your own presentations. And I also mentioned my, my latest ABA journal column, uh, which is called Bite the Bullet Point, which is on sort of taking a fresh approach to using presentation slides, which is out in the, the new, which I guess is probably October, uh, issue of, of the ABA journal kind of puts some of my ideas about using PowerPoint, uh, more effectively, uh, all in one nice little article. It was a great blog post that you sent over last night and a good article that you wrote in the ABA Journal. So that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. 
Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Information on how to get in touch with us, as well as links to all the topics we discussed today, are available at our show notes wiki at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast at the Legal Talk Network site or in iTunes. And if you have questions or suggestions for upcoming episode topics, please email us at tkmreport at gmail.com. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report on the Legal Talk Network, the premier online legal media network. Now, we will never presumptively subscribe you to our podcast in iTunes, but we definitely think you'd be wise to su- subscribe to it on your own. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network.